welcome to Real Stories, Journeys of Financial Wellness. I'm your host, Crystal Ugazima. Throughout 2022, we've had lots of amazing guests. Three of them not only shared their personal stories, but their professional expertise. So today's episode features the best of their advice. We start with Danny Kofke, who we first met in episode 28. Danny has some advice when it comes to gaining a sense of control with your budget. As a former teacher, he saw some parallels between kindergartners and money. don't tell money how to behave, it can run amok like a five-year-old. So I think back when I taught kindergarten class to 24 five-year-olds, if I went in that classroom and I gave no direction at all, you can imagine after about 10 minutes what it would look like. (laughs) And that's the same thing I have found with money. A lot of times if we don't give it direction, tell it how to behave, it just runs amok and it just spins. And that's why, you know, I kind of go back to that spending plan and going back to that budget. So then you can tell it, you can analyze, okay, this is where it's going. And then I do encourage you that before the month begins, come up with a spending plan for that next month. So you tell every single dollar, this is where you are going this month. And then a lot of times when you do that, then you're able to even pay yourself first. And a lot of times we pay ourselves last, right? We pay our bills first and everything. And then we have nothing left over after that for our savings. So when you set it aside before and you tell your money how to behave and it's earmarked for specific things, then it tends to go a lot farther. Of course, life can be unpredictable. There are limits to what's in our control. For more on that, we turn to Shannon McClay, founder of The Financial Gym, which provides coaching to people who are working on their financial goals. We spoke to her in episode 24. Sometimes you have, you feel like you get things under control and then issues pop up. So that's, that's financial, most people's financial journey in a nutshell is that, um, you know, whatever, maybe you're, you just got a pay increase, you got a new job and like, you're kind of, you're doing great. And then all of a sudden, you know, the car needs four tires or there's a healthcare emergency or, you know somebody passed away and you've got to buy a plane ticket to go home in a weekend. And those sort of things, that's like, you know, thousand to $2,000 surprises happen all the time. I always say it shouldn't be a surprise. Um, it's the only thing that should be surprising is what kind of emergency is it? Cause it, they pop up all the time. And, um, and so you're just kind of like constantly trying to keep everything under control and, but there's something's going to pop up at some point. That's the guarantee with finances. Like we have so many clients who we get them to the point of building up an emergency fund. They're so excited. And then an emergency happens, you know, and they're like, well, I don't want to use the emergency fund. We're like, but that's what it's here for. Like, there's a reason why it's called an emergency fund. And there's a reason why you need it. Cause these things happen. This is exactly what we're pl- planning for, but um, it's still hard when it happens. Cause you're like, well, I just wanted to see it keep growing, but those are the other funds. We're like emergency funds meant to be spent. And not on credit cards. That's the point. It's like you have the cash for it. It's not going on a credit card. So how do we strike that balance between establishing control with your money and navigating the realities of life? For that, let's hear from Amanda Clayman, who was our guest in episode 23. Amanda is a financial therapist. The good enough budget, I think if we we think of it, first of all, in a sort of nurturing and supportive role, as opposed to like a punitive 
kind of role. Like a budget should be there in the way that I, I was first describing how I came to it as like, it provides a zone of safety and reliability in terms of your choices. And so if your budget covers the big stuff, like with my budget, I had, you know, a certain amount that was my discretionary amount, which was the amount that I kind of had to pay attention to. Like, think about your good enough budget as sort of covering all of your regular committed expenses and then giving you enough form for the discretionary stuff, the stuff that you need to think about and make decisions about um, to give you some direction, but it doesn't necessarily require in order to, to serve that function. It doesn't require for it to necessarily have a direction for every single penny ahead of time. So you just need your budget and your expectation of yourself as sort of like the verb to budget as well. So like how you're using this um, to, to provide enough sort of like structure and guidance and support and an allocation of resources toward things that make your life feel good and pleasurable and for it to work the ways that you want it to work, as opposed to the way that I think a lot of people um think about budgeting was, which is that a budget is just a tool of no. We're trying to think of like in a good enough budget, like what are you using your budget to say yes to most of the time? Returning to Danny, let's examine the impact of delayed gratification. It's certainly not easy to focus on the future, but it can have a huge impact. Delayed gratification. And I think that's the problem with, with many right now that it's very hard to sacrifice today for something tomorrow. And, and you know, but we did have, and we knew, you know, eventually when we had children, we wanted to have options to, to have Tracy be able to stay at home if possible. So knowing that and living on a teacher salary, we knew, okay, if we want this to happen, these are the steps that we're going to have to take. How might one balance the discipline that Danny just spoke of with the reward system? Amanda has an idea about how to effectively treat yourself. I want people to have all the treats. Um, and and I want tr- the treat, the way that we understand treat, to be really like specific. Um, and what I mean by that is it's not a treat if you feel like you have to defend it after the fact. Like the best treat is the treat that we put in ahead of time. And that helps us be be functional and be happy and all of that instead of coming from a place of deficit and trying to use treats to catch ourselves up, which I find doesn't work as well, um, or treating ourselves in a way that's going to be regretted later because it turns out that there's not the money or the money wasn't put aside for that particular use. So we want to be very careful because then what happens is that people form a, if if there's a negative financial consequence afterward, what they do is either the, the lesson is like, I am bad that I needed this, that need is bad. Um, or that it was wrong of me to use those resources to try to take care of myself. I should just try to not, I should try to push that need away. Trying to create a sense of, of deserving and giving to ourselves um, that isn't going to be sort of taken back. As a financial educator, I know how hard it can be to follow my own advice. I'm inspired when I hear others talk about the sacrifices they made on their financial journeys. 
First, let's hear about Danny's sacrifices. The planning beforehand really helped us. So once again, knowing that kind of that was an idea for us. So when we bought our first home, it was truly a starter home. It was a two bedroom, two bath house. So we knew, okay, we, this is the mortgage that we're going to be able to afford eventually if you do stay home. We had one car, that car we bought, the, the new car, <laughs> my biggest mistake, but we actually had that car. That was the only car we had for four years. So we shared, even when we first moved home, took a couple of years before we had Ava, I would drive Tracy to school, drop her off, go to my job, pick her up in the afternoon. Someday she needed the car. I would ride my bike to work. I was the only teacher parking in the, in the bike rack, right? But um, but we knew, you know what, If in order for her to be able to stay at home on my teacher's salary of about $42,000 a year at that time, we couldn't have car payments. We couldn't have a huge mortgage. We couldn't have this debt because let's face it, 42,000 doesn't go very far. So we knew, you know, it's going to provide for us for those living expenses, but any excess, it's going to be really difficult to do so. So, you know, going into it, we kind of practice in a way before living off that one salary. So we used her money coming in while she was still working before having Ava to kind of build up our savings and and pay off that debt. But, um, but I think it was just, you know, it was instilled in us. Okay. This is, if we really feel this important about you staying home, this is what's going to have to happen. And, you know, uh, there was no materialistic thing that made us want to change the lifestyle we had. I mean, I'm like anyone. I see someone pull up next to me in a new Mercedes. Of course I want it. I mean, and at that time I thought, you know, I can have that, but something will have to change. I'll either A, have to get out of teaching and get a higher paying job. B, I'll have to get a second job and not see much of my family. Or C, Tracy's going to have to go back to work. And in those eight years, there wasn't one single item that made us want to change the way we were living. So just kind of weigh it out. And, and, you know, and that's what I tell people, do what's right for you and your family. For some people, it isn't right for someone to stay home and that's fine, but we just did what was right for us. And then, you know, any financial decision we made, we kind of looked at the bigger picture of how it would impact us. Sacrifices can involve some tough decisions as we learn from Shannon's dilemma. The house that we bought that we really couldn't afford to begin with, (laughs) because that was in the district that my son needed. Um, We were living in them. We got divorced and, and I was still in the house with my mom and my son and our cat. And, um, and I did that for a year after the, the divorce and it was just too difficult for me to manage that. I couldn't, the gym wasn't at a place where I could give myself a raise. And, um, and I really wasn't like, I was really living paycheck to paycheck because the um, all of that on my shoulders. I did have you know some child support, but it wasn't enough to cover the the mortgage expense. So it was uh, a January um, like leading into the new year. I tell people I do my financial plan like I do for my clients, and I was sitting down, kind of running through the numbers, and I was like, and my mom had just moved out, and I was like, this is just not sustainable, um, and so I. Um, I literally cried myself to sleep that night. Cause it was just like, I knew, and I texted my ex-husband, I was like, we got to tell Will like, you know, and he was, he was up for selling the house, my ex, because he was not living it anymore. And we did have equity in the home. So he wanted to sell it. So he was happy, but I was like, we're going to have to tell Will, which this was the house we'd been in for like the last five years. And so, um, it was like highly emotional. And it was funny that that morning I told Will, my son, I was like, you know, we're going to have to have a family meeting tonight. And, uh, he's like, am I in trouble? And I was like, no. And he's like, is this why you were crying last night? And I was like, oh, 
you could hear me crying. And he's like, yeah, you're a really loud crier. I was like, okay, thank you. Um, I was like, yeah, this is why I was crying last night. I was like, do you want to know? He's like, no, as long as I'm not in trouble, I don't care. I'll wait till later. I was like, what a, what a guy. Right. (laughs) So he, um, so then it was like telling him, you know, it was hard. And I, I was, you know, like, Hey, we can move to another town or whatever. And he's like, well, I don't want to leave my friends, you know, the same community. And then that became a challenge because there's not a lot of rentals in this community. It was like, now I got to figure out a way to keep him here. But we did. And, you know, we're in, um, a place that, you know, is definitely fits within the budget. And I'm glad we did because I did have to take a pay cut through most of 2020 to help keep the business afloat. And, you know, I would never have been able to do that in the last situation and, um, you know, was able to, to do that here, was able to do, um, we just put up our Christmas tree and my son and I, I told him when we sell the house, we'll have more, you know, disposable income and we could do some other things instead of being like tied to the house. So we went on a trip to universal and just he and I universal studios. And then he wanted, he had so much fun. He wanted to go back and we were putting ornaments on the tree and we got ornaments from our two universal trips. And he was like, these were so much fun when we went to universal. Like, wasn't that so much, this is my 15 year old saying it, which they don't, you know, it's really hard to win over. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like, wasn't that so much fun? I was like, yeah, it was. And you know, in those moments were able to happen because I didn't have the expensive home, you know, and we, and we have less and, you know, we don't, need as much as we did. And so, yeah, it was the right choice. Um, you know, probably should have done it sooner, but, um, it was everything. I always feel like everything happens at the right time. So, you know, glad we sold it. Don't, I don't even know if I'll ever own a home again. I, I just, I, it's, I don't think it's for me, but, um, happy to be a happy renter and, um, you know, have a rent that's within my ability to pay, even with a pay decrease. One of the goals of this podcast is to normalize conversations about money. Let's learn how Danny practices transparency with his family. I mean, we talk to them all the time about money and I, you know, I, they don't know exactly how much we make, but we let them know we have savings because things happen. And I pointed out, you know, things to her like emergencies that do happen. And, you know, once again, they, they had a move a few years ago and we moved in with my mom and dad. They witnessed that firsthand. I mean, it affected their life. They left their childhood home to do that, but they saw, hey, we're doing it to take care of our grandfather. And that is, you know, because mom and dad controlled their money, they weren't living paycheck to paycheck. They were able to do so uh, and value what's important. So I think, you know, actions speak loud, but we're also, we discuss it as much as we can. And I, you know, try to bring up examples. And of course, you know, when they're 14 and 17, it can be hard. I mean, they're, it, it, some of it is a little above their head, but I think going back to kind of what I talk about of what I want, you know, my, my goals basically are to have options in life. And that's what I've always looked at. And that's kind of what I try to tell them as well is that money, you know, it gives you options on things to be able to do, whether it's a career that may not pay a lot of money, but you have low expenses so you can pursue that, or it's taking care of a family or buying nice things, whatever it may be, money gives you options to do so. From an early age, Shannon has focused on talking about money with her son. Will is 15. So I have done the exact opposite of my parents. And all I do is talk about money with my kid um, all the time. Um, we, uh, since he was five and I went on this journey to start the gym, I had been, well, before that, when I was a financial advisor at Merrill, we started talking to him about it, you know, from when he was five. And there's different 
conversations as they age and there's age appropriate conversations, but, um, we're always taught. It's very normalized. Like he knows how much I make. Um, you know, my salary at the gym is a hundred thousand dollars. Um, and you know, he knows that he knows I can make more doing other things. <laughs> uh, but this is, you know, this is like the family business at this point. He's, I've been doing this since he was so little that, um, you know, he understands about the business finances. He understands what's going on there. We, j- we communicate about it. It's very, it's, it's normal. So I've taken the exact opposite approach to my parents. Turning inward, it's equally important to have an internal conversation. Amanda has a tip for how to examine our own money behavior. Benign curiosity is is about being able to bring awareness to our situation and to ourselves in that situation um, with as much neutrality as possible. So instead of of being there as sort of like the, the judge or the critic, like this is good behavior, this is bad behavior, like it's really important to start with just like, what is my behavior? What are the, the consequences of my behavior? How does it feel to be me in these situations? Um, and to just try to get the lay of the land without jumping to, and what am I going to do with this? Or, oh, I've identified a problem. What's my solution to the problem? Like, like to just make awareness the job and an, an attitude of, of, benign, meaning like not hurtful, like neutral to good, um, to make that kind of curiosity about ourselves, our orientation to, to sort of mapping what is. Amanda is a big believer in awareness and intention. For this reason, she has something to be cautious of when it comes to automated spending. I think it's really, I think automation is awesome for for taking things that could be claims on our attention and sort of moving them off to the side so that we're better able to put our attention on the things that need it. Um, I don't think that automation is a good solution to solving the problem of money makes me anxious and I'm just trying to avoid looking at it. So if we look at our money and make sure that we are clear about how much those automated expenses require um, and how that fits in the overall context of all of our spending and savings choices. And we've sort of kept the the focus on then all the discretionary stuff that we need to figure out. I have zero problem with things being automated, but but I think that that's the place where we really need to tell ourselves the truth is like, am I just automating this because I'm scared? to look at it. So when is the right time to start looking inward to examine our money habits? Shannon has some thoughts. I always tell myself, do everything exactly the same. Um, What I tell clients is, um, you know, is the best thing you can do, especially in early ages, you can really set up a foundation for a great life, the earlier you start working on your finances and and make financial health a priority. And I saw that when I was at Merrill Lynch um, and I was meeting with people who had 250,000 in assets, but that was everything. Like they were at the end of retire, you know, they're at retirement and they're, you know, this is the nest egg and this is it. And they wanted the plan. And a lot of times I did the plan and it was like, 
they had to keep working for a few more years or like they really needed some other income and really kind of beef up that fund or not start taking from it or not start taking like social security. And I would sit across from people who, you know, were 60 something and tell them they had to work more. And that was like telling somebody who just ran a marathon, you've got five more miles to go. Like it was very hard conversation to have. And, and I vowed during those times that I really wanted to get people early on in the marathon running and get them really trained up so that, you know, when they're at mile 15, I can tell them they could take their foot off the gas, you know, that, because they worked on it from an early age and they've prioritized it, they have so many more choices as they get down the road because, you know, you just don't know how long, like, I mean, for me, I was always like, I'll work forever, but I'm like, maybe I'll get to 60 and not want to keep working, you know? And it's a horrible place to be in to have to work when you don't want to work. So, um, you know, it's really like prioritizing that. And that's really been my focus and the work with my, my clients and our clients is like, the important thing is you could change your financial health at any age. I just want to be very clear about that. It doesn't matter how old you are. Um, you can change your financial health, but changing it from an earlier age, the, con- the, ch- the compounding and the effects are extreme. As we consider our financial goals, many people strive to improve their credit score, but it's easy to take things too far. Amanda discusses if it's a good idea to chase the perfect credit score. I, I think that that's, again, one of the ways that kind of like, it's sort of like a version of, you know, people loving like personality quizzes and, and personality types and things like that. Like we, we love to look in a mirror and feel like the thing that we see in, in the mirror is something that we value about ourselves. And when people, I think that credit scores play very easily into that very human tendency. So like, what if we see that we have a high credit score that feels really validating in the sense of like like yes it's super useful to have a good credit score um there are some very real world advantages that come from it at the same time looking at that as a sense of like that means i'm okay that means i'm a good person that means i'm responsible um and being more attuned to that external image of ourselves versus like how is my financial life really feeling for me would it make more sense for me to, for example, like is, is carrying a balance on a credit card, something that strategically makes sense in my life, but I would be afraid to do it because I'm afraid it's going to knock my credit score. Um, like I, I just encourage people to really stay focused on, on their own sort of metrics, um, for understanding how, how these different tools can work in their lives even if it it does have gives you kind of a temporary ding on your credit score, um, if it works for you, that's the most important thing. It's so easy to compare ourselves to others, but in the end, it's important to celebrate our uniqueness as Amanda expands upon. So I used to say this all the time in in the beginning of my workshops um, because I would just need to flag for people like there are very specific ways that we we talk about and don't talk about money in, in polite society, if you will. And in these workshops, inevitably what would happen is that somebody would say a number for something. They would say how much their rent is. They would say how much their student loan is. Um, They would talk about how much they had in savings. And I would, I could look at the faces and everybody in the room would put themselves on one side or other of that number of either having more or less and, and going like, is their number the right number? Is my number right? Not the right number. And, and like, 
the idea and humans very naturally kind of want to sort themselves socially. Um, So we're never going to stop this. So I would try to at least like sort of normalize it, if you will, by just acknowledging that we're all different and, and that sort of feeling of like, oh, maybe theirs is the right way. And mine is the wrong way is, is a way like sometimes that's useful information, but most of the time we really do want to just kind of go like, that is, that's a reaction that I have. It's not necessarily the reality is like some person might have a really low rent, but they might also have a huge student loan and you're not getting, you're only getting one piece of the data. So we, we have to kind of like remind ourselves not to, not to over-interpret the things that we know and step away from the idea of sort of like how we'd like to put ourselves relative to that person. We're all different. So yes, we are all unique, especially when it comes to our numbers. But that doesn't mean we don't have a lot in common, as Shannon tells us. People have a lot of fear and shame around their finances. There's a lot of um, like taboo-ness around money. And people are just walking around with you know, too much shame unnecessarily before whatever they look like financially. And it was just really important for me to share like what, you know, finances look like and, and decisions and to understand for people to understand, like it's all, you know, it's normal, it's fixable, um, you know, to be approachable. I mean, I, again, we've worked with over 10,000 plus clients now at this point, I always say the problems are the same. The zeros are different. I mean, there's the same challenges as somebody making $700,000 as somebody making 40. I mean, different degrees, but, um, you know, very similar challenges. We're more alike than different when it comes to finances. And with that, another year in the books. I'd like to thank Wendy Medrano for her contributions to this episode. Special thanks to Hero, who will play us out. On behalf of all my colleagues at GreenPath, I wish you and your families a joyous holiday season and a prosperous new year. And whatever the new year brings, don't forget to enjoy your journey of financial wellness as much as your destination. Welcome back, Hero.